78. I'm a little more, honestly, I'm a little more nervous about today's message than normal, and that's because it's going to be very practical. And I found, I remember going through Romans many, you know, like a good number of years ago when we were in Romans, and Romans is kind of like Ephesians except bigger and longer, and that Romans starts off with a lot of doctrine and then it moves into a lot of practical stuff. And I always thought the doctrine part would be what I would get the most pushback from, and it turned out it was the practical stuff. Um, well, it's kind of the same way today, because I've got, I've got some strong opinions that could be wrong, could be misguided, could not entirely be right, but I'm going to do the best I can with them. Uh, and I realize other people have strong persuasions and opinions as well. And so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Paul is uh, teaching the church, he, people saved by grace through faith, now that that's been established solely on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Based on that, they should live different lives. We've already looked at three of those ways in which a Christian's life should be different. Number one, we should not be marked by falsehood, but by truthfulness. And he kind of adds the caveat in love. Just because you've said something true, if it is not communicated with a measure of love, if it's not bathed in love, you're not doing what Christ wants you to do. So avoid falsehood. Pursue truthfulness in love. Secondly, we looked at anger. And here, the real emphasis wasn't on times to be angry, though I think that's appropriate. But the stress was on safeguards and warnings against anger. Because it is so volatile. It is so corrosive. It is so destructive. And if I think I've got a good handle on anger, and I'm angry a lot, I certainly, that is... That can't possibly be true. So the emphasis on his teaching on anger isn't, come on, Christians, get angry. The emphasis is on, you better make sure that thing is under control. You better make sure it's corralled. You better make sure that you're not sinning in your anger and you're not letting it consume you and it's now become more important than the gospel. That we're not so busy cursing the darkness, we forget we're the ones holding that are charged with caring for the light. And then thirdly, last week, to avoid stealing and in its place, we should give ourselves to hard, honest work. And then the caveat there is, I'm not just talking hard, honest work, provide for yourself. I'm talking hard, honest work because it's better to give than to receive. I'm talking hard, honest work because God gives us abundance so that we can be quick to share. And so the relationship between the stealing and the sharing is, if I'm not finding avenues to be generous and to give, I am stealing. Because God gives an abundance so that we can demonstrate grace, the grace of giving. Last week, one of my statements was, whatever my work or task, it is my opportunity and charge to glorify and serve Christ. And all that was kind of born out of the book, Why the Reformation Still Matters. Because one of the things that the Protestant Reformation did is it reclaimed the value or the spirituality of everyday life. The ordinary. The Christ, you can serve Christ well in the ordinary aspects of life as well as if you were a, a priest. 
as well as you were a minister, as well as you are in vocational ministry, that all of God's people enter into ministry no matter what your calling is. And I played three quotes, uh, audio clips from Why the Reformation Still Matters, all, all out of one chapter on, on the reclaiming the ordinary aspects of life. And, and Lori asked a question in the Facebook group, which was a good question. And I, I had a couple other little quotes that I didn't have time for last week because I didn't want to overwhelm you. There, each one of these quotes is less than 60 seconds. So I think one's 40-some seconds, the other is 50-some seconds. But a couple little extras, all out of the same chapter... And these two quotes are going to deal with changing your vocation. And the second one, uh, kind of clarifying what is rewarding work? How do we understand a rewarding career or a rewarding vocation? The first one, changing your vocation. And that, that's born out of the idea that last week uh, in the book, the authors contended, wherever you're at right now is your calling. And you can glorify Christ in your calling. And it could lead to the idea of this passivity, like, well, so there's no incentive to ever change? I'm just supposed to stay here? And, and this is the idea, no, you can change your vocation, but where you're at right now, whatever, wherever that vocation is, whatever your circumstances are, that is your calling right now until that may or may not change. So here's the first clarification on changing your vocation. There are dangers in the way an understanding of vocations can be applied. First, it can lead to a passive acceptance of the status quo, however unjust that may be. If you find yourself in a job where you are poorly treated, should you stay in it because this is God's calling on your life? To say you are called to stay is a misreading of Luther. His point is not that you may not change your role, but that you need not. You do not have to stop being a baker and become a monk if you truly want to serve God. You can serve God just as well as a baker. But if you have the opportunity to change your role, then so be it, as long as it is a legitimate lawful role, and as long as you undertake the new role with the same sense of vocation. And then the second little clarification on rewarding work is, uh, is helpful because we live in a culture, an American Western culture, we are so individualistic. We are so much in tune with, I'm in tune with my rights and my thinking and, and how does it affect me? And so the idea of rewarding wo- work means to think beyond how it affects you uh, and look at a bigger picture. It's part of recognizing the providence and the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God over all of life. So here's the second clarification also. Less than a minute. Second, the new work ethic is self-serving. Work is judged not by the service it renders to others, but by the service it renders to me, the worker. A good job is defined as a job I find fulfilling, rather than a job that serves the common good. When we speak of a rewarding job, the reward is enjoyed by the worker rather than by the community. Being a road sweeper is not seen as a good or rewarding job in our culture. But Luther would have called it a good and rewarding job because the community is rewarded with the common good of clean streets. God cleans the streets through the road sweeper, so the road sweeper is a co-creator. 
So it's just learning to bring Christ into every, every aspect of life wherever you find yourself. Uh, that book is worth, it's not a super cheap book, that book is worth its, its price just based on the chapter that I keep giving you these quotes from. But I think I'm done with that. Let's uh, go ahead and move on to our fourth category of change behavior this morning. And the fourth category of change behavior has everything to do with what we say, the words that come out of our mouths. Last week, in starting with the idea of stealing and working hard, I started off with a few quotes just to get you thinking. I'm going to do the same thing this morning, start you off with a few quotes about the words that we say. The first quote reads like this. The tongue weighs but a few ounces, but so few people can hold it. Uh, And that's a wise guy. He didn't even put his name to that because uh, just a few ounces. But there are very few people that can hold a tongue. The second quote is written by, I mean, the book I got it out of, it calls it a a Scythian uh, sage, 600 B.C., so 600 years before Jesus was ever even born, a Scythian sage said, The tongue is, at the same time, the best part of man and his worst part. With good governance, no part, none, is more useful. Without good governance, no part is more mischievous. And you've probably experienced that. I mean, the power of the tongue, the power to heal, to encourage, to edify, the power to tear down, set on fire, to wound, to hurt. You've been on the receiving and the giving of both those. The power of the tongue. Just a few ounces. James talks about it, obviously, in James 3. We were there just a few years ago. Third quote by Erasmus. This was uh, one of Martin Luther's contemporaries. Uh, We'll talk about him later, so remember that name. Uh, He he was about, I can't remember, 15 or so years, born 15 years earlier than Luther. Luther died about 10 years or so after him. Erasmus said, It is a great misfortune not to have sense enough to speak well and judgment enough to speak little. That's true. And then the last one, there are many men whose tongues might govern multitudes if they could govern their own tongues or govern their tongues. Uh, George Prentice was an American journalist. I didn't look up where, but that's what the attribution was, an American journalist. Um, lots of quotes on the things that we say. Uh, the Bible is filled with quotes about things that we say. Proverbs is filled with proverbs about things that we say for better or for ill. Uh, the Bible has a lot to, the Bible, Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Bible just has a lot to say about the words that come out of our mouths are important. And by our words, we will be justified or by our words, we'll be, we will be condemned. And when the Bible says that, it doesn't mean so we're saved by the things we say. I guess on, on one really rudimentary level, you could say yes, because if the thing I say is Christ is my Lord and my Savior, I've confessed him as such, I'm saved by Christ and Christ alone. But if I'm truly saved by Christ, it will affect my words. It will affect the speech that comes out of my mouth. And so at the last day, Christ will be able to show the words that characterize my life were a reflection of being saved by his grace. Or the words that characterize my life were a reflection of I used religion to justify myself. But that's probably a sermon for another day, and I don't want to get sidetracked more than I have. The verse in um, 
in Ephesians chapter 4 reads this way. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So there you've got your balance that we've seen in most of these uh, scenarios that Paul is giving us. Don't do this. Instead, do this. Don't live lives uh, of untruthfulness, but rather tell the truth. Don't steal, but rather work hard and share. Don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but instead, build up as fits the occasion. Give grace by what you say. Let's break that down. Starting off with, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Uh, Literally, the word that it's used in the New Testament has the idea of that which is rotten or useless or unfit. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about good trees and bad trees, unfit trees. And Jesus talks about an unfit tree produces unfit fruit. A corrupt tree produces corrupt fruit. A useless tree produces useless fruit. That's the same word. Jesus, or uh, Paul says, let no useless, corrupt, polluted words come out of your mouths. We're to avoid that. I mean, if you're a good tree, if you're saved by God's grace, you're a good tree. Your words ought to reflect His goodness and His grace It shouldn't be corrupt. So, the $10,000 question would be something along the lines of, what constitutes corrupting talk? What what fits in that category of useless and corrupting? Because Paul doesn't define it. He doesn't list it out. Now, here's what I'm talking about, just to be clear. I guess if we looked at all of what Paul writes in the New Testament, we could could say, well, it includes... uh, these fits of anger or jealousy or, or envy or competition. He writes to the Corinthians some of those things that, that must be corrupting. But, but here he really doesn't define it. One of the ways that we can understand what, what fits in that category that we need to avoid is by looking at what he says we ought to do in its place. So if I move on to the what we ought to do, he says but only such as is good for building up. Now, some Bibles translate that as that which edifies. But build up is a great word. That's literally what it means. So, uh, instead of useless talk, my talk ought to build up. It ought to edify. And this is actually the easiest one to kind of identify what Paul means by it, because of the way he used it already earlier in the chapter. But before I get there, Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, when he's talking with his disciples about who do men say that I am and all of that, Jesus says to Peter, and actually to all the disciples, he says, you know, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Christ says, I'm going to build my church. Paul says... The words that come out of your mouth ought to build up too. Christ said he's going to build his church. You ought to build up by what you say. The other, two other places that it's used, not the only other two places, but in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. So in the same chapter, Paul has already used the same word twice. Remember, Christ is building his church now in verse 11. And he, speaking of Christ 
gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So Christ is building his church. How does he build his church? Well, he, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. That's one of the ways in which Christ is building his church. By giving these speaking gifts leaders who are going to establish how the church is built. He goes on to say, verse 12, 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. Builds itself up in love. Christ is building his church. He's gifted the church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then as they're equipped, every part is contributing to the whole and the church builds itself up. Now, if I take all that, my question would be, I need to ask myself, but what I'm thinking about saying, is this going to build up what Christ is building or is it going to detract from what Christ is building? Because he means to build his church, and he will. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. I'm certainly not going to prevail against Christ's church. But that doesn't mean everything that I say is building up. It doesn't mean everything that I say is edifying. And so the question that I have to ask myself is, what I have said, or what I'm about to say, am I, am I building up what Christ is working, or is it actually kind of useless? It's really bad fruit. It's really better left unsaid. That would be the first question. Secondly, he talks about as fits the occasion, which is kind of unusual. The English Standard Version translated that way. There's two words in the Greek. Uh, ESV has four words for the two words. Most other Bibles do not use that kind of a phrase, as fits the occasion, Most every other translation has something along the lines of as needed or as necessary. So what comes out of my mouth should be good for building up as needed, as necessary. And so the easy question here is, I need to ask myself, what I'm thinking about saying, is this necessary? Is it building up? Is it it needed? And maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not necessary. If it's not needed, if it's not necessary, then I need to quiz myself as to maybe this is actually useless, rotten, corrupt. It's better left unsaid. And then thirdly, he talks about that it may give grace to those who hear. I'll just say I need to ask myself, are people going to be blessed by what I'm about to say? Is it building up? Is it necessary? Am I giving grace to the hearer or am I just venting? Am I really detracting and and tearing down what Christ, in fact, is building? 
They're good questions. It's not a litmus test. I I can't say exactly this is out of bounds. This isn't. I mean, that's it's nuanced. I think it's intended to be nuanced, but it needs to be considered. It needs to be thought about as to what my words are like, what they're communicating. Then he adds verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, Most commentators, I think, rightfully say, this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit encompasses any of the myriad of ways in which we can disobey. But in particular, in the immediate context, that is stated in conjunction with, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So I can grieve the Holy Spirit by, by any act of disobedience, but in the, immediate, the most immediate context, it's when corrupting words come out of my mouth, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. I think that's true. But before we get to the practical aspect that may or may not get myself in trouble, I want to go with three quick doctrinal points. Uh, three quick things that are they're worth noting, uh, worth identifying, and then we'll move into the practicality of the matter. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. You don't grieve a force. Uh, if I am very conservative with how I use energy, I haven't grieved electricity. It's, it's just a force. It's a power. It has no personality. You don't grieve a rock. Uh, dumb old rock and you kick it or you throw it in the water. You haven't grieved it. It has no personality. The Holy Spirit is a person. This is one of the way, one of the scriptures among many scriptures that indicate he is not merely a force. He is a person. We worship holy, holy, holy. One God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is a person as is reflected in verse 30. Secondly, the Holy Spirit works. Uh, He works together with the Father and the Son in accomplishing their purposes that are set in place usually before any of this was ever created, so far as we know. And in this case, the work is sealing. And that sealing is for the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit is working. The sealing comes at the moment of salvation, the moment of conversion. Believers are sealed. And they are sealed for the day of redemption, when Christ comes back in power and glory. So the sealing is in my past. The redemption is in my future. And that's why I'm fully persuaded that salvation... To be born of God is a matter that cannot be lost. I have an inheritance in, in heaven that can neither perish, spoil, or fade away, reserved by God himself, sealed by God's spirit. So that's God's business. And God will discipline and chastise me as is necessary. But my salvation, if it's of God, it can't be lost. I'm sealed until the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit works. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Now, this may or may not to you, you may not rec- may or may not recognize, this is actually the most controversial point. Uh, in what sense can we talk about God or the, Ho- the Holy Spirit in this particular case being grieved and having emotions? In theology, this is called the doctrine of the impassibility of God. It's a fascinating topic, which is one of the articles I have on the back for your counter, whichever one that was. Uh, does God have emotions? Does God really feel? It's talking about the impassibility of God. 
And there are good people on both sides. I would say in early church history, most of church history, they really hammered away at this concept of the impassibility of God. He, he does not have emotions. That is merely accommodating language for us because we do have emotions. Uh, I would say in more recent times, and by recent, I don't just mean my lifetime. I, I mean in light of 2,000 years of church history in the last, I don't know how many hundreds of years, or, but especially in the last my lifetime, there's a lot of pushback on that. Yes, God does have emotion. But it's not emotion like we have. Because our emotions, we are, are often... Um, controlled by our emotions, and we're reacting to things. God, I think the Bible teaches that God has emotions, but not like we have emotions. Actually, the person that probably, on a theological level, level clarified this, I think, in a really terrific way, is a theologian named John Frame. I think he's at Reformed Theological Seminary. So he's probably a, a Presbyterian background. Uh, and he, he does an excellent job on God exhibiting emotion or affections. And it's not just pretend for our sake, they're real, but it's in keeping with his character as a whole and in keeping with his character as to what he's ordained. So his emotion is always appropriate to what he has ordained within, within how he governs all of creation, which... You guys are looking a little... So let's get into the practical stuff and I'll wake you back up. The practical considerations do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, two opposite errors, as is often the case. Uh, one of the things I teach over and over and over. Uh, in most... In so many different areas, we can, we, are, we can be really good at avoiding one error, but we slip into the equal and opposite error. It's really hard to navigate where we ought to be in the middle rightly. Probably most of us are prone more to one error than the other error, uh, which uh, this is now not very clear yet, but it will be. So the two errors in this particular case. When the church turns a blind eye to dangerous and deceptive teaching that compromises cardinal doctrine, that would be an error. Uh, Paul called out certain individuals that had compromised the gospel. Uh, Paul called out Peter in the way that he compromised the gospel by the way that he, he lived by withdrawing from Gentiles. So there, the church can't merely ignore cardinal doctrine, where it's being compromised, where there is error that is threatening the church. Paul's in Sunday school is, is uh, talking to the Ephesian elders, the overseers. And he's imploring upon them to guard the flock of God because there are going to be those that creep in with uh, false doctrine and false teaching. And they're going to try, try to destroy the sheep. And so there's, there's these warnings, there's these cautions. And the church is charged with don't turn a blind eye to that. Get it right. Recognize there's such a thing as truth and there's such a thing as error. That To not do that would be an error. But the equal and opposite error is along the lines of when a church or Christians individually usurp Christ's role as Lord and Judge, particularly in matters in which only he is charged with the judgment. Um, 
And we saw that in James back when we were in James. You know, don't put ourselves above the law where we become the judge. Only God knows hearts and me. God and me know your heart. And so I can pass judgment on what everybody else does, how they think, and how they behave. And, and James would say, you can't do that. That's God's role. And so an, another error is that we go on witch hunts and, and we're always uh, pulling up what we think are the tares. Remember Jesus taught a parable about wheat and tares and, and the enemy sowed tares and the, and the servants are like, should we go pull up the tares? And, and Jesus says, if you pull up the tares, you're going to pull up the wheat too. That's God's business for the end of the age, not your job. It doesn't mean the church never judges, because that would be an error too. Where judgment needs to be pronounced, the church better call it right. But the other error is sometimes we call it too quickly. We're too quick to call things black and white when we don't really know. So, a couple principles. Matthew chapter 7, I referred to this a couple weeks ago. Jesus taught famous verses that are abused, I recognize, but they're still worth something. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, what I need to recognize before I pronounce judgment, and there's, I, pronounce, I do pronounce judgment, and a lot of times it's wrong. Uh, but when I, when I say what I think about an individual, I need to remember that how I pronounce judgment and the measure of grace or kindness or harshness I use, that's what I should expect in return. That ought to give me pause. Sometimes judgment's still called for. Sometimes really it wasn't needed. And it was probably useless and corrupt. Second principle, uh, Matthew, or Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Also, probably familiar, not as familiar as Matthew, but Paul writes to the Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That sounds familiar, what we just saw in Sunday school downstairs. Paul told the overseers, you know, keep watch on yourself. You know, start with yourself and then guard the flock. But if you're not guarding yourself, you're really not doing the flock any good. But all this in a spirit of gentleness. I think there are people too quickly think they are qualified to pronounce all the judgments in the world on everybody else. And so I think what Jesus says in Matthew, what Paul says in Galatians, ought to give us pause. So, what I think, what I see happening all the time, and I'm, I'm not on social media a lot, but I'm on a little and the little bit I'm on, it's pretty easy to tell. I think we live in an era where, where we live with these gotchas, where there are people that are, have, have appointed themselves to catch people, catch Christians saying the wrong thing. You're wrong about that. And then they get labeled. You're wrong, and now you've got this label. You're not on the right side. 
And in conjunction with these gotcha moments are, are all these clickbaits because they make, they write, I don't know if they write blogs so much anymore as they post YouTube videos. And, and it's a lot of clickbaity stuff. And these are Christians, people that identify as Christians, profess Christianity, and, they, and they're on these witch hunts, and they're doing these gotcha moments, and then they have little catchy titles that make you want to click their videos. I'll give you lots of examples. But I'm not going to name names, because then I'm doing exactly what I say you shouldn't do. So, you know, what is Tim Keller up to anyway? Here's one entitled, R.C. Sproul's Shocking Rebuke to Tim Keller, Russell Moore, Rick Warren, and Ed Stetzer. It was only four and a half minutes. I watched it. It wasn't R.C. Sproul's shocking rebuke of anybody. They took something that R.C. Sproul said, and then they applied it to those four people they didn't like. That was clickbait. I mean, it got me to watch it. Uh, J.D. Greer and Ed Litton. Subtitled, Plagiarism, and then God Whispering About Sexual Sin, A Sobering Assessment. Response to Nine Marks and Jonathan Lehman. What happened to the Gospel Coalition and Matt Chandler? David Platt's Big Lie, Exposed with Evidence. Racial Justice, Good Faith Debate Reaction. Um... Farewell, woke church. Time for some honesty. On and on it goes. Um, And one of the things, well, I'm not sure. There's so much I want to say. I'm not even sure where to put it all in. Some of the people that are characterized with these gotcha moments and these clickbaits, they actually assign labels to people. I can't tell you how many times they will quote like Jude 1.4 about people creeping in unawares and they're destroying the church of God and they're pronouncing that as a judgment. I wouldn't be comfortable doing that if I were them. You know, Myron Perry, his wife Faye just passed away. I did the funeral a week ago yesterday. Uh, Myron Perry, I mean, you know, he's been here longer than I have. And uh, Myron Perry, he's kind of from a, a different era, different generation, His way of evangelizing was probably not... It wasn't the way I would be comfortable with. He grew up in a a different era. More uh, cold turkey, knocking on doors kind of stuff. Uh, A certain way that he did it. Uh, So we we had discussions from time to time. It wasn't always the same. But Myron Perry cared about lost souls. And one of the things Myron Perry said to me or to other people... He's like, if you don't like what I'm doing, tell me what you're doing. He was doing something. If you don't like some of the people you criticize in the videos, how are you reflecting the love of Christ? Because with the same judgment you measure out to others, that's what you will receive. So we play this game of who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God in the church, among a lot of people. There's this game of who's in and who's out. We decide who's in and who's out. I'm going to start easy, I think. Keith Green, in or out? Is he in the kingdom of God or not? He died when he was like 28. Favorite Christian singer? Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. There is a redeemer. And then I read his biography. I think it was written by his wife, but maybe not. At least that would be a lot of the information. And in a sense, he was kind of a character. Like, he kind of had a strong personality. Uh, 
It wasn't very charitable in a lot of ways. I have no doubt he's in the kingdom of God. It's not up to me. But I have no doubt he's in the kingdom of God. He wasn't perfect. None of these people are perfect. If you're looking for a gotcha moment for me, I've got all kinds of sermon notes. You will find, you will find plenty to keep say, I got you. You were wrong about that. And you know what? I was. Because I've been wrong about a lot of things, and I'm not done being wrong yet. So long as God gives me breath, I'm going to be wrong. But I hope I'm more right, and I'm more on the right track than on the wrong track. I'm hoping I'm moving in the direction I need to move. But I'm not always right. I'm going to say he's in, but what about Larry Norman? Larry Norman is truly the pioneer of contemporary Christian music. Long-haired guy. When I first heard Larry Norman back in the day, I'd listen. a friend of mine... Uh, liked his music, and some of his lyrics were like, he's the rock that doesn't roll. And he, and he sang some of these lyrics where he talked about, why don't you look into Jesus? He's got the answer. And, and the church did not like Larry Norman, let me tell you. I didn't like Larry Norman. And then Larry Norman was going to be at a free concert up at the YMCA in Peoria, and I'm like, I'm going to go and be the critic of Larry Norman. And I went to the concert, and he revealed his heart in such a winsome way, I completely reversed on Larry Norman. I've got some of his CDs. It doesn't mean I'm right about, it doesn't mean I was right to begin with, it doesn't mean I'm right after the fact. Only God knows. Which is why judgment is committed to Christ. I like Larry Norman. What about Rich Mullins? In or out? In the kingdom of God or out? He died at 41. What could possibly be wrong with Rich Mullins? Well, Rich Mullins, toward the end of his life, kind of struck up a friendship with a guy named Brennan Manning, among others. He was becoming, would seem, more driven to the Roman Catholic Church. And guilty by association, Brennan Manning said some things that were pretty sketchy sometimes. Pretty, you you kind of wince at that. Brennan Manning, in or out. And by association, Rich Mullins, in or out. One of the theories is that Rich Mullins, because he was moving in the wrong direction, maybe that's why God took him at 41, to keep him from identifying with Roman Catholic theology. I don't know. It's not my job to know. I like his music. I think he was a tremendous gift of Christ to his church, so far as the way I've benefited. But at the end of the day, my assessment is not what's going to hold. Or anybody else's assessment. Well, what about Kevin DeYoung? What could possibly be wrong with Kevin DeYoung? And most of you probably don't know Kevin DeYoung. He's a Presbyterian. He's a real up-and-comer, though he's, I don't know, maybe 15 years younger than I am, a brilliant theologian, a winsome speaker. Uh, He's written a good number of books. I mean, Kevin DeYoung is terrific on so many levels, but he writes for the Gospel Coalition. Well, there you have it. He must be compromised somehow because he will write articles for the Gospel Coalition. And if you don't like the Gospel Coalition, that's enough to condemn him. Well, what about Matt Chandler? Matt Chandler's not perfect. Well, I guess Kevin DeYoung wasn't either. In or out? Good or bad? A gift of Christ to the church or not? What if I switch Kevin DeYoung with Mark Dever? Well, that's who I've got the man crush on. I love Mark Dever. I mean, if I could hear any speaker at all, it would be Mark Dever. I'm going to scrap, I'm going to edit that out of the audio. I was hoofing it 
when I was stuck in a traffic jam to get to Mark Dever at Together for the Gospel a few years ago. Like, we were stuck on the bridge in Louisville, and I'm like, I am not missing Mark Dever. And I jumped out of that vehicle, and I hoofed it to the, whatever the Cardinal Center was or whatever, uh, KFC Yum Center, to hear Mark Dever. Because I think he's a terrific speaker, founder of, or what, the guy that started Nine Marks Ministries, in or out. People, there are people that criticize everyone I'm showing you up on the screen. What if I slip, uh, exchanged Matt Chandler for J.D. Greer? J.D. Greer said something about God whispering at sexual sin. And the people that don't like J.D. Greer, he was past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, were all over that. That he's compromised the Bible's sexual ethics, and J.D. Greer had to write a response to it. And he says, yes, that was an unfortunate phrase, but in the context of the larger message... You're missing my point. And he explained it in the larger context. How Jesus' harshest words were, were for the religious Pharisees and hypocrites. But he had to explain himself because people got you. And then he gets labeled. What about, go back a few years, William Barclay, kind of a Roman Catholic tradition downplayed miracles, but seemed to have great devotional insights into a lot of scripture, in or out. It's not for me to decide. I don't know. What about Don Carson and Tim Keller, founders of the Gospel Coalition? In or out. What about J.I. Packer and N.T. Wright? In or out. It doesn't make any difference what I think. My assessment... I've got to make my own assessment as I walk with Christ, walk with God, look at Scripture. I think all of those individuals have been gifts of God to his church. All are imperfect and are works in progress. All have said things I strongly disagree with at some point. But as I've said in the past, I disagree with myself at some point. It's not my job to make those assessments. What about Erasmus? Remember I started with him early on? In or out? Erasmus is a a very interesting individual. I don't have time to really flesh out his life, but uh, a really short little biography on him, it was like two and a half pages. He's a fascinating individual, and it strikes me that nobody that I'm aware of, and my, my knowledge is pretty limited, I don't know of anybody that is more like Tim Keller than Erasmus. In that, what I mean is his breadth of knowledge was vast, and a lot of people didn't like him because of that. Erasmus wanted to reform the church in the worst way. He, uh, that's an unfortunate statement, uh, in a very serious way. Uh, He disagreed with the dogmatic theologians of his day, their intolerance and hostility to looking at Scripture for what Scripture said. His his most important work he ever did was a translation of the Greek New Testament uh, or an editing of the Greek New Testament. Um, He's got a... I'll read you a couple lines that says, uh, he wrote this, He is truly a theologian who teaches not with syllogisms and contorted arguments, but with compassion in his eyes 
and his whole countenance, who teaches indeed by the examples of his own life that riches are to be despised, that the Christian man must not put his faith in the defenses of this world, but depend entirely upon heaven. The test of theology was whether it was reflected in Christian living. He said these famous words, which sometimes people think Luther said, but it was actually, and Luther hailed uh, his Greek work, by the way. Luther loved his Greek work. Uh, they wound up batting heads over the, the freedom of, or the bondage of the will. But uh, Erasmus wrote in his preface to his Greek work, he said, um, I could wish that every woman might read the gospel in the epistles of St. Paul. Would that these were translated into each and every language so that they might be read and understood not only by Scots and Irishmen, but by Turks and barbarians. Would that the farmer might sing snatches of scripture at his plow and that the weaver might hum phrases of scripture to the tune of his shuttle, that the traveler might lighten with stories from scripture the weariness of his journey. Uh, The assessment... This little biography kind of ends, it says this, Erasmus was a man of moderation in an age of extremes. His reputation was therefore attacked by both sides of the Reformation controversy. He refused to be caught up in the turbulence of the times. So, despite the deft aim of his literary missiles, the shy, sensitive bachelor found his scholarly detachment misunderstood, sometimes by friends sometimes by foes. His words were taken out of context and, to make, and made to serve undesired ends. He, tried to, he, tried, he wanted the church to stay united. And so he was misunderstood by both sides, that you're not taking our side. Is he in or out? The last paragraph or last sentence reads, Critics have often said that Erasmus was little more than a humanist with Christian overtones. They sometimes accuse him of neglecting the work of Christ as an example and teacher. Yet Erasmus believed in salvation by grace. His work on the New Testament allowed the word of God to speak for itself and so to come alive for both simple people and scholars. A multitude of faults is more than offset by that kind of testimony. And then I'm going to end with John Piper before I open it up. I think John Piper is an excellent example of somebody who is passionate about the truth in a kind way. Now, this goes back to 2009, so I don't know what what he would say differently about the situation. He's actually commenting on Doug Wilson. So, is Doug Wilson teaching a gospel that is not in keeping with what the Bible teaches? Uh, So, this 2009, it's kind of dated, but I love his passion... And I love his graciousness. It goes like this. Dr. Piper, in your defense of the gospel against uh, N.T. Wright, have you found federal vision theology of Doug Wilson to be another gospel? No. That's easy. Doug Wilson doesn't preach another gospel. Okay? I don't think N.T. Wright preaches a false gospel either. I think N.T. Wright preaches a very confusing gospel. 
The burden of that book is to say, tell us more clearly what you mean if you think all of this in different categories really coheres with historic Reformed theology. I, I wonder, I wonder if it does. I doubt, but um, I, didn't, I wanted to be so careful. I sent the manuscript to him. He wrote an 11,000-word response. That was, a, that was a third the length of my book, and he wrote that much response. It helped me a lot to catch on to some nuances. So... This isn't about him, so I won't talk about him anymore. But, but Doug Wilson and, is one of the most careful and bright uh, reformed post-millennial objectivist theologians around, and he's got people around him that are dumb. <laughs> and... I listened to all three hours of his grilling. Go to his website, and he, he, he subjected himself voluntarily to be examined by the presbytery. And, and as I listened, I thought, brilliant. Wrong on numerous cases, but wrong the way you'd expect a Presbyterian to be wrong. <laughs> now... Now, I, I don't know, you would know better probably, because you told me you know him, and I don't know him. I, I, I met him one time. I, I don't know if his trajectory will, will be as, as, as faithful as his present place. For him to talk about the fact that there are unregenerate elect and unregenerate un, regenerate and, and church members who aren't church members and and the saved who aren't saved, I understand what he's saying. It's not heresy. Same, same thing anybody would say who, who's been baptized and joined the church, whether it's a Baptist or a Presbyterian, and you treat them like they're part of the family of God, and you find out in the end they're not. And there was a kind of objectivity to their membership that got them some privileges. That's what the federal vision is about, a real objective nature. And he's taken it to the extreme where, like, you give communion to little tiny babies and uh, you, you pronounce the words of the Holy Ghost and the Trinity over the, the baby's baptism and there's real objective salvation here and he could go to hell and he doesn't believe in losing your salvation. It's very complicated. And uh, don't write Doug Wilson off very easily. He's a very bright guy. I don't think he's a heretic. I don't think he's preaching another gospel I think he's more consistent than some of his followers are, and I think he gets a bad rap from a lot of PCA guys who aren't careful in the way they think, although I am concerned with the trajectory. I'm going to cut it off there just for time's sake. Um, I mean, John Piper had reflections on Tim Keller's passing as well, the last communication he had with him and what they were glorying in. Uh, I think John Piper is a good example of a path that the church and Christians would do well to follow instead of deciding who's in and who's out and using clickbait and gotcha moments to promote uh, agendas that I don't think build up, I think they tear down. What are your comments and questions? Carrie. So I appreciate the challenge. <laughs> Uh, you know, John MacArthur at his Shepherds Conference a few years ago had a panel there, and it was during the whole social justice thing or right around then, and, and Al Mohler was there and Mark Dever was there. 
I don't remember who else was there, but uh, the guy moderating the panel was really coming hard after Al Mohler because Al Mohler hadn't signed uh, a social justice thing against the social justice movement. He hadn't put his name on the paper. And he was coming on hard after him. And, and Al Mohler and Mark Dever, Mark Dever's like, look, if I haven't helped write it, I just don't sign stuff. I just don't. And the guy's coming, but it's true. This, you know, you're, you're compromising the gospel. You're, you know, you need to sign this. And, and finally, John MacArthur stepped in, because this was his guy. John MacArthur stepped in and said, these are my friends. Like, I don't have a lot of friends left. He's up on these guys. Like, you know, we don't have to decide just because somebody dots an I different or crosses a T different that they're out and we need to label them. Allow some grace even to be wrong because it's by grace that we're won back if, in fact, that's what needs to happen. So I've got so many of these moments. I, that's one reason why I really limit myself as to what I will watch because this stuff makes it just, I don't, it doesn't set well with me. <laughs> Somebody else? Ter, uh, Theron and then Lori. Yeah, one error would be to say, well, I'll just keep to myself. I'll just be an isolationist. I won't be involved in what, what anybody else is doing. That's not a solution either. The other solution is to, to correct everybody. You know, I've said in the past, and it's got me in trouble, you know, God doesn't give a gift of criticizing everybody else. He just doesn't. Uh, Lori. Yeah, that, that does reflect a path of wisdom. That's what we ought to do. But also recognize that at the end of the day, my judgment is not what's going to hold on the final day. When Christ comes back in power and glory, they're like, well, all right, Cliff, what do you think? Or like everybody else, up or down. Uh, you know, we're not, it's not up or down. Christ knows hearts. I can't, I watch some videos trying to prepare for this kind of stuff. I can't tell you how many times people assign motives to what people did. You know why? You know why Tim Keller didn't come down harder? Because he's, and then they give his motive. I'm like, how do you know it? what his motive is? Where did that come from? I thought only God knew the secrets of your heart. I don't know those motives. I'm not saying he's justified because I don't know. I'm saying I don't know. But I know I've read some Tim Keller books and I've listened to a good number of his sermons and I have, been, I have found them fruitful and full of grace. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think. Christ isn't going to ask me my opinion. I'm either saved by his grace or I'm not. Let's stand and be dismissed. God, our Father, I thank you for um, all of what Paul writes. They are challenging words. Uh, I thank you that you, in your goodness and grace,